0: My Lord, I had nerves all up in my body, but now I am at ease. My Lord, thank you, Jesus. You know, I kind of feel like this story I know. There was a millionaire who was reputed for throwing some of the best parties in town. And every year, he would throw the most extravagant parties. And he would order all these sharks and all these alligators and stingrays, and he would place them inside of his pool. And he would stand at the edge of the pool and he would pose his challenge to the people that were in attendance. And he would say that if there was a man or a woman that was brave enough to swim from one end of the pool to the next, yeah. that he would write them a check for a million dollars. Yeah. He would sign over a deed to one of his oil wells. Yeah. And as soon as he finished saying this, everybody heard a big splash. And there was a man in the water swimming frantically, <laughs> desperately trying not to be devoured by the beast. Yeah. And this man jumped out of the other end of the pool, soaking wet, drenching water, panting for his life. And the millionaire said, my goodness, in all the 20 years that I have posed this challenge to the people that are in attendance, not once has anyone ever done it. Would you like me to write you a check for a million dollars? And the man said, no. He said, well, would you like me to sign over a deed to one of my Orwells? The man said, no. He said, well, I got a beautiful daughter. She's about to be of age. Would you like me to give you my daughter in marriage? And again, this man said no. And at this point, the millionaire is visibly agitated. He's like, well, what do you want? And the man said, all I want to know is who pushed me in. I've been thrown in today, but by the grace of God, I too will be able to swim. Turn with me to Mark 5, verse 1. And once we culminate reading that scripture, we are then going to proceed to Ezekiel 22, verse 25. Mark 5 is going to be from the NIV version, and Ezekiel is going to be from the Message Bible. I don't know. I just like the language better in the Message Bible sometimes. It's more dramatic. And you can say amen when you get there, brothers and sisters. And the Bible reads, they came to the other side of the sea, to the region of the Gerasenes. As soon as he got out of the boat, a man with an unclean spirit came out of the tombs and met him. He lived in the tombs. No one was able to restrain him anymore, even with chains, because he often had been bound with shackles and chains, but had snapped off the chains and smashed the shackles. No one was strong enough to subdue him. And always, night and day, he was crying out among the tombs, and in the mountains, cutting himself with stones. When he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and knelt down before him. And he cried out with a loud voice, what do you have to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I beg you before God, don't torment me. For he had told him, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. What is your name? He asked him. My name is Legion, he answered him, because we are many. And he kept begging him not to send them out of the region. Now a large herd of pigs was there, feeding on the hillside. The demons begged him, send us to the pigs so we may enter them. And he gave them permission. Then the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs, and the the herd of about 2,000 rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned there. The men who tended them ran off and reported it in the town and the countryside, and people went to see what had happened. They came to Jesus and saw the man who had been demon-possessed by legions sitting there dressed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. The eyewitnesses described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and told about the pigs, and then they began to beg Jesus to leave their region. I'm going to go to Ezekiel 22, verse 25. And it reads that extortion is rife. Robberies epidemic, the poor and needy are abused, outsiders are kicked around at will with no access to justice. So I looked for someone who would stand for me yeah. against all of this injustice to repair, to restore the walls of the city. I looked for someone who would stand for me, someone who would stand in the gap to protect this land so I would not have to destroy it. But I could not find. Anyone? No, not one. The question that challenges every single man and woman in this room, every single boy and girl, it is a question that must not only be heard, but responded to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's not enough for this to go, just to go in one ear, not the other. But it's a question that we must all wrestle with, the question that we must all labor with and eventually confront. And that question is, will you stand in the gap for God. Father, I need you. I am not trained. I have no experience in this. But I have the living power of God behind me right now speaking through me. And I know that these are your words that are coming out of my mouth. Calm my nerves, Lord. Let me not think about what people think about me and how I deliver, O oh God, but yeah. help me to stand here to say today and say, Thus saith the Lord. Yes. I know that you will be glorified today. Yeah. Amen. That's it. So we have this nameless man, this demoniac from Mark 5, that has been banished to the margins of human existence. He's filthy, his clothes are tattered, he's covered in blood. He's lost all ability to communicate with any iota of sense. He has become so violent that no one can refrain him or tame him, and no one dares to cross his path. He is the biblical equivalent of Debo from the movie series Friday. When you see that Negro, you tuck your chain, you hide your jewelry, and you run as fast as you can. He exhibits the most gruesome form of self-harm, self-mutilation. The etiology of the day, they added it all up, and they called it demon possession. Tortured in mind, body, and spirit, this man embodied the gamut of human suffering. And yet, his community did what we still do today to the disenfranchised, to the homeless, to the prostitutes, to the gangbangers, the drug dealers, the homosexuals, the, the, the pregnant teens and the youth. They cast him to the side, they disregarded his pain and suffering, and they made him into an invisible man. Ralph Ellison talks about this invisible man. Yeah, 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 you, must, you might be familiar with him. He talks about how it feels to be a black man living in a white man's society, and how he felt invisible. And I believe that the words that he uses to describe how this felt, I think it resonates very perfectly with our demoniac. And I think it resonates very perfectly with how it must feel to be a demoniac today. He says that I am invisible. I'm a man of substance, a man of flesh and blood, fiber and liquid, And it could be said that I possess a mind. But I am invisible simply because those that are around me refuse to see me. When they come around me, they see themselves. They see figments of their imagination. They see their surroundings. They see everything and anything but me. Mr. Moniac was a man of flesh and blood. He was a man of fiber and liquid. He possessed a mind, albeit a depraved mind. Beneath all of that madness was a man... I was crying out for help. But they discarded him. Like a bottle cap or a piece of lint to be flicked to the side. But Jesus responded differently. When everybody else showed unaffected scorn towards his plight. Jesus showed love and compassion. When everybody else was blind to his condition. Jesus looked beyond the demonic possession. And saw a man crying out for help. When they failed to stand in the gap. Jesus stood in the gap. Now, if I'm going to be honest today, I'm not really surprised at the ease in which they're able to just cast this hopeless man to the side. After all, this demoniac was a threat to their way of life. He was a threat to their conventional society. And they did what we, most, what, we, what we mostly do when it comes to people that are a threat to our, to our way of life in our conventional society. I'm not surprised it was easier for them to disregard this man possessed by demons, to leave him to his own devices, than it was for them to overcome their self-imposed fears and their overinflated concerns with themselves and actually be concerned about about the deliverance of this man's soul. I'm not surprised because they wrestled with the same diabolical disposition that I wrestled with as well. Indifference. Indifference, a lack of concern, a lack of sympathy. It's not so much that I'm going to push you into a ditch, but I'm certainly not going to help you get out of it. It's not so much that I'm going to gossip about you and backstab you and talk behind your back, but I'm certainly not going to intervene when I hear other people talking about you. These people were indifferent. But it's not a surprise. Gerasene, after all, was was a region that was not predominantly populated by Jews. It was filled with heathens. These were not people that subjected themselves to some higher moral authority. They were not like us. These were heathens. Now, I'm not the smartest person in the room, but I expect drug dealers to sell drugs. I expect prostitutes to sell their body. I expect low-down, shady human beings to do low-down, shady things, and I expect heathens to do what heathens do. One plus one equals two in my book. But as much as I would expect that Christians would do as Christians should do, display love and grace and mercy, oftentimes Christians do as the heathens do, and they respond like the heathens respond, particularly when it comes to the demoniacs in our society. And as much as I would like to say that in this situation, confronting the demoniac that I'm not Christ, concerned about this man suffering more than my own comfort, I more often than not resemble the heathen. The Bible says they came to Jesus and they saw the man who had been demon-possessed by legion sitting there dressed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. Some translations venture to say that they were upset. That they were angry. These folks should have been partying. They they should have been turning up. There should have been rejoicing and celebration. For Christ's sake, that's one less demoniac you got to worry about. But the Bible says that they were afraid and upset. Ellen G. White says that The loss of the swine seemed to them a greater moment than the deliverance of this captive of Satan. No, 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 no. You ain't hear me. You ain't hear me. She says that the loss of some pigs that spends most of their time swarming around in some feces, the loss of those pigs meant more than the deliverance of a human being. They were so absorbed in earthly things that they cared not about the spiritual things of life. Come on. Yeah. They, were so more, they were more concerned in their economic livelihood and their financial interests that they cared not about the suffering that was right before their eyes. Yeah. Now, before we judge these heathens for their indifference, before we call them out, we must acknowledge that their indifference serves as a reflection of our own shortcomings. Yeah. We are all plagued by the same form of indifference in the church today. No one is exempt from this. Yeah. We all struggle with this tension of being selfish and self-centered and and self-absorbed with our own issues and our own concerns and our own families and our own careers when God is calling us to stand in the gap, to be a father to the fatherless and a defender of the widow and a refuge to the poor and a warrior against all injustice. Now, many of you may be wondering, what's so wrong with me focusing on my family, brother? I mean, what's so wrong with me focusing on my career? And then obviously you want to grow up in your career. Obviously you want to focus on your family. Everybody knows the condition of the black family, that it is broken, that it is fragmented, and it needs all the focus it can get. And I'm not against that. But all I'm saying is if your focus on your family and your career prevents you from being obedient to the Holy Spirit yeah. and being sold out in service to others, there's something wrong with that. There's something wrong. There are times in my life where I am more concerned about my future instead of being concerned about the thousands of children that are losing their future in their broken educational system. There are times in my life where I am more concerned about satisfying my own pangs of hunger instead of being concerned about that single-parent mother that can barely afford to put three meals on a table each day. There are times in my life where I am more concerned about my issues and my comfort. Instead of being concerned about and being hypersensitive to the issues that plague others and actually doing something about it. I wrestle with this daily. I don't know if I'm the only one up in this room that struggles with indifference today. I don't, maybe I'm the only one out here that struggles with indifference, but I wrestle with this daily. I ask myself, is it okay for me to just walk by the homeless and give them a couple of change but not really be concerned about their overall condition and think that God is going to be pleased with that? My Lord, is it okay for me to just walk by the poor and derelict and not be engaged in their overall empowerment and think that God is going to be pleased with that? Can I continue to be indifferent when God is calling me to stand in the gap and think that God is going to be pleased with that? These are just questions. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. I know. They say that indifference is the one quality that causes even angels to weep my lord that went right over your head oh, say again. they say that indifference uh-huh. is the one quality that causes even angels to weep Mercy. when I first heard that verse that thing had me shook had me paralyzed because I asked myself are the angels weeping now Mercy. are they weeping when we turn our heads in the face of injustice are they weeping When we fail to mentor our youth and stare them in the right direction, are they weeping? When we fail to stand in the gap, are they weeping? When we see the rising levels of black and black crime, but we fail to lift up our collective voices and say that this will not happen under my watch, that this will not happen under my dime, that this has got to stop, are they weeping? I think these questions can best be answered by going to the word of God. It doesn't really matter what I think, but what does God say? If we examine the scriptures, both the Old and New Testaments, we find a God that is deeply invested in the vulnerable. We find a God that is very sympathetic to the plight of the poor and the oppressed. And he's almost calling us to be active agents in in satisfying the needs of the disenfranchised. Well, in Isaiah 58... God is questioning his people whether or not they believe that humbling themselves for a day is a fast that is satisfactory to them. He questions whether or not fasting is about bowing one's head like a reed and lying in sackcloth and ashes. Is that what you think fasting is all about? These people could not figure out why their prayers were not being answered, why their cries for help were not being responded to. Certainly we've been humbling ourselves and abstaining from all desirable food. Certainly, we've been fasting from social networks and fasting from scandal and empire. But God, you have not seen it. Why have we fasted? Certainly, there's nothing wrong with fasting from your favorite TV show. Don't get me wrong. There's, there's nothing wrong with fasting from your favorite food item. But in addition to that, is not this the kind of fast that I have chosen? To break the chains of injustice, to untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free and to break every chain? Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wonder with shelter? When you see the naked to clothe them and to turn away, not from your own flesh and blood, is it not to spend yourself in behalf of the hungry and satisfy the needs of the oppressed? Again, in Isaiah, God is... Speaking to the people of Israel through his prophet, he speaks of a people whose whole head is injured, my Lord, whose whole heart is afflicted, a people who God says has no soundness from the sole of their foot to the top of their head. And it's very easy to think that God was being kind of harsh, to go so far to say that their whole heart is afflicted, that their whole head is injured. It's easy to think that God is being harsh. I mean, after all, these Israelites had perfected the art of giving offerings. Their offerings were always on fleek. It was, it was always on point. Bulls, lambs, goats. I mean, these folk were animals sacrificing maniacs. They were to participate in all these new moon festivals and all these Sabbaths and convocations. In a modern context, these are the people that are always giving tithe and offering. Yeah, 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 yeah. They gave to a place of, for grace. They attended all the Bible studies. They went to their go university classes. They even had small group classes at their house for all their religious friends. And I'm not saying that there's anything wrong with that. You need to do that. But God says, despite all of that, when you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Your hands are full of blood. Learn to do right. Seek justice. Encourage the oppressed. Defend the fatherless. Plead the cause of the widow. In God's eyes, their inaction is, in stopping the injustice was just as bad as the perpetrator that willfully caused it. Yeah, you may not have pulled that trigger. Yeah, you may not have caused that father to leave his children. Yeah, you may not be caused starting a sex trafficking ring in your own spare time. But because you're not actively engaged in justice in the fight against injustice, then blood is on your hands. God seemed to be identifying right here a religion that was self-serving. A religion that was self-absorbed. A religion that was not poured out in deeds to others. A lack of injustice, a lack of justice is a sign that the worshippers' hearts are not really right with God at all. That their prayers and all their religious observance is filled with self and pride. Let me make this clear. I don't want you to think that you have to do X, Y, and Z in order to win the favor or love of God. I don't want you to feel like God is going to be angry with you if you're not a drum major for justice. We're under a new covenant that's covered by grace. I get that. So even when I mess up Even when I fail to witness to the people That God wants me to witness to And even when I fail to feed the hungry When God tells me to feed the hungry That does not mean that God is going to forsake you That does not mean that God is going to leave you But just because God is not going to stop loving you That does not mean that God does not require more out of us I think we need to take the burden off our back The monkey off our back Sometimes we think we got to solve world hunger Sometimes we think we got to solve world poverty. He's not requiring you to single-handedly solve these issues. We wouldn't need Jesus to come back if that was the case. But what is God looking for? Soon after God finishes telling his people to learn to do right, to seek justice, to encourage the oppressed, what does he say? Come now, let us settle the matter. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they shall be like wool, if you are willing. What is God looking for? A willing heart that is willing to stand in the gap. Book of Ezekiel in chapter 22, the prophet clearly shows the indifference of God's people during that time. It paints a picture of rising levels of injustice and the people's unwillingness to confront that injustice. I don't know about you, but I love the prophetic words of the prophets. I love it. I love it. I mean, it just shows that there's really nothing new under the sun, that history has a way of repeating itself. And the same kind of issues, the same kind of corruption, the same kind of immorality that these people are facing back then, look around. It's the same kind of stuff we're facing with right now. He says that you're a city that is murderous at the core, my Lord, just asking for punishment. You're a city that's obsessed with no-god idols, making yourself filthy. This is the Message Bible. You force a premature end to your existence. I'll put you on exhibit as a scarecrow of the nation's, the world's worst joke. Your leaders, the princes of Israel among you, compete in crime. Your community that's insolent to parents, abusive to outsiders, come on now, oppressive against orphans and widows. <laughs> you treat my holy things with contempt and you desecrate my Sabbaths. You have my people spreading lies and spilling blood, flocking to the hills, to the sex shrines. These folk are freaks and fornicating unrestrained. <laughs> Incest is common. Men force themselves on women regardless of whether or not they're ready or willing. Murder is for hire. Usury is rampant. Extortion is commonplace. Let me keep on going. We lean in heavy on this word today. The leaders among you become desperate like warring, ravaging lions, killing indiscriminately. They grabbed and looted, leaving widows in their wake. These are the times that they were living in, but it looks just like the times we live in right now. Your priests violate my law and desecrate my holy things. They can't tell the difference between the sacred and the secular. And the people lost their ability to tell the difference between right and wrong. They're contemptuous of my holy Sabbath, profaning me by trying to pull me down to their level. Your politicians are like wolves prowling and killing and rapaciously taking whatever they want. And the priests say this is what God says. When God hasn't said so much as one word. Man, the interesting thing about all of this, brothers and sisters, is that God didn't seem to be placing blame on the politicians. Politicians are going to do what politicians do they're going to overpromise, they're going to underdeliver, they're going to abuse power, they're going to mistreat the masses. Politicians are going to function as politicians. God didn't seem to be placing blame on the heathens. Heathens are going to function as heathens. They'll be the ones to ignore the demoniacs in society. But God seemed to be casting blame on his people. The Israelites who were supposed to know better, who were supposed to act as the hands and feet of God. Oh, my Lord. In repairing a world, fallen away from God. The Israelites who were supposed to be more than willing to stand in the gap against injustice, but were so indifferent, they acted so much more like the heathen that it rendered them useless in doing the will of God. The demoniac, illustrated in the writings of Mark, represents more than a demon-possessed man. Yeah, 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 he represents more. He represents anything that has been enslaved by the enemy, corrupted by the enemy, hijacked by the enemy, He represents anywhere where justice has been delayed and justice has been denied. He represents the areas in our communities where God is calling us to stand in the gap. If we remove our rose-colored glasses and our rose-colored Ray-Bans and look at our society as it is, we find whole communities that have been enslaved by the enemy, corrupted by the enemy, and hijacked by the enemy. Brothers and sisters, you don't got to go far around this neighborhood neighborhood to see broken houses and broken buildings to see the people that are living inside it are living in third world conditions with no running water and no heat. And the only source of income is food stamps. You don't got to go far. My Lord. To see the byproducts of mass incarceration that is stealing the lives of all our brothers and sisters. You don't got to go far to see young women that have been so degraded that they they only believe their self-worth and their own value come from between their legs. You don't got to go far to find a community that is desperate for people that are willing to stand in the gap for God. And here it is. The reason why the people were so indifferent in the book of Mark and the reason why the people failed to stand in the gap in the book of Ezekiel is because they could not see, nor did they remember how God stood in the gap for them. They could not see themselves in the demoniac. It's testimony time. My life. It's a story of how God stood in the gap for me. It's crazy whenever I look back into my life and see how far God has taken me. I never thought in a million years that I'd be standing in front of y'all people preaching the word of God. For the longest, I was rebelling against God. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The thought of surrendering my life to a holy and righteous God scared the bejesus out of me. I always felt like I was going to lose something. I always felt like I was going to lose out on the edgy parts of life. Listen, man, sin would not be a temptation if it was not enjoyable. (laughs) Come on now. (laughs) Uh, Folk don't just get high and get drunk and party because it's a pain to do it. It was enjoyable. (laughs) And I did not want to lose out on the thrill of life. Man, I was morbidly afraid of becoming one of those religious stiffs. Those folk that whose life comprises nothing but Bible studies and Bible studies and Wednesday church meetings, which is which is exactly what I felt my life was going to become if I gave my life to God. I felt liberated, being able to live an autonomous and free lifestyle. I was my own moral authority. I could drink and party and live the most hedonistic, self-serving life I possibly could, and it would be an exhilarating ride. And maybe when I turn like 35 or 40, I would give my life to God when I have a family, when when I've settled down, when I've gotten all the crazy out of my system. I would have tried and tested all that the world has to offer, and then maybe I would be finally perfect enough to give my life to God. See, I didn't know God personally. Yeah, 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 yeah. I had a biblical understanding of him. I had a theological understanding of him as being the creator of the universe and the the ruler of all things created. But I didn't really see him intimately as my father and my savior. So I continued to pursue after my own desires. Listen, I don't want to go on and on about my story, but to say the least, just like how God fought for you, God fought for me. After two car accidents in which I came out unscathed and a a bullet that came a half an inch from hitting my arterial arteries, which a doctor say would have killed me had it done it, and a tumor in my jaw that turned out benign, I stopped running away from God and I allowed God to catch me. I'll never forget my father, who I've never heard cry before in my life or at least that I can remember, his voice was shaking. Tears were in his eyes. And he cried out to God because he felt like the enemy was trying to kill his son. And I can remember feeling afraid. I, I can remember I didn't understand why I was being attacked this way. But as I look back on it, there was never a reason for me to be afraid at all because God was standing in the gap for me. Now, I'm going to share something with you guys, and I'm not sharing this with you to get any kind of pity. But since I've given my life to God, I've seen my life spiral out of control. (laughs) I'm being real today. I got to make this thing plain. I've experienced job loss. I've seen my car get repoed. I've seen my bank account on many occasions reflect nothing, and I've taken pictures of it. Yeah, 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 yeah. I've seen my jaw inflicted with sickness. I've seen myself drift farther and farther away from my dreams and the things I thought God was going to give me. And many a times I've cried out to God to wonder, why would you allow me to suffer this way? I only want to do your will. But yet the messenger of Satan continues to buffet me. And I can hear a voice telling me that my grace is made perfect and weakness. Brothers and sisters, you can never, ever, ever, ever see God stand in the gap for you unless there be a void, unless there be brokenness, unless there be poverty, unless there be pain and suffering and loss and emptiness. That's when God stands in the gap. My story is mine, but it's not unique. Every person in this room has had God stand in the gap for them? I don't know what it is. I don't know how he stood in the gap for you, but he has. But what I do know is Ephesians 2. <laughs> that we were all dead in transgressions and sins. When we follow the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air. The spirit who is now at work in those that are disobedient. All of us lived among them at one time. Yeah, we did. Gratifying the cravings of our flesh, following his desires and his thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, my Lord. But because of his great love for us, who is rich in mercy, he made us alive in Christ. What does that mean? God stood in the gap for you. And I thank God that he never gave up on me. Even when I went against his will and I did the things I should not do and I rebelled against his word, God continued to call my name. When my back was against the wall and I was deeply entrenched in darkness and I could not see my way through, God said, I'm going to stand in the gap. You see, this enemy of ours is always trying to make us forget where God has taken us from. He's always trying to make us forget what God has done for us. But I know that I got some honest folk up in this room that are willing to admit that your mind ain't always been righteous. Your mind ain't always been sane. Lord knows that there were times you came close to taking that bottle straight to the head because your sorrows were too much for you to bear. But then God told you, I got gotcha. you. I'm going to stand in the gap." When you was flat broke and you couldn't rub two nickels together and you had no idea how you was going to pay your bills and how you were going to pay your rent and how you're going to pay your mortgage and you cried yourself to sleep and you fret day and night and then God told you, don't you worry, I'm going to stand in with that. When you had that baby out of wedlock and everybody treated you like you was nothing. And they treated you like you had no value. And they treated you like you wasn't a human being. And you began to worry because you had no idea how you were going to raise this child on your own. And then God told you, don't you worry. I'll be that baby's daddy. I'm going to stand in the gap. My Lord. There's a video that I want to send, show you guys. And the media team is going to pull it up. It brings home my point. Now that you recognize how God has stood in the gap for you, what should be your response? And this guy perfectly personifies it. Do we have audio? Yeah, 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 yeah.
1: about mass incarceration because I see it every day, even though I am. I don't come to this perspective from the position of someone who, as a black man, is concerned about black America, even though I am. I don't come to this from the perspective of a father who has a young daughter who's going to have children who have a greater possibility of going to prison than their white or Latino counterparts. But I am. I come to this perspective from somebody who was one of the one in 15. I come to this perspective from someone, and I didn't go to jail for a white-collar crime. I didn't go to jail for having too many beers to get behind the wheel of a car. My crime of commitment was attempted murder in the second degree. And I served nine years in New York State prisons. Went to jail with the GED. I went to jail without faith. I was a self-proclaimed atheist agnostic. And the first time that I got down on my knees to pray was at 26 years of age, on February 5th, 1990, in the 34th precinct in Upper Manhattan, the same precinct that the police officers came from the day that Malcolm X was killed. And I got down on my knees in that precinct, and I said, God, I don't know what your name is. I don't know to call you Allah or Jesus or, I don't know, but all I know is I need help. And I heard a voice in the back of my mind say, said, the truth will make you free. I said, boy, those are some real good drugs I had because the truth is going to give me 25 to life. <laughs> but I confessed that day, and it was the first time that I took responsibility for my own actions as an adult. And I went to jail. 16 months on Rikers Island, the biggest prison and industrial complex in the world, the biggest jail in the world. 16 months. I watched the worst of man's inhumanity to man. I watched two men hold a man down and attempt to play tic tac toe in his face with a razor. I saw people get busted in the head with a metal mop ring over a cigarette. I fought for my life for 16 months. And when I went to jail, my daughter was three months old. And by the time I came out, it was two weeks before her ninth birthday. But I stand here today telling you that the prison didn't break me, it made me. And I went to jail a boy, and I came out a man. And I'm not breaking my arm, pat myself on the back. I'm telling you that there are hundreds of thousands of other nameless, faceless men like me who've gone through the prison industrial complex and have come out on the other side knowing that they can't just go back to their community and and act like it's business as usual. We have to go back to the community and talk to the young men there and tell them that there's another way that there's something else that they could do and let people know like you good folks that it's not good enough to come to church on Sunday and and lift up our hands and throw back our heads and open up our mouths and, and praise God through, through, through child that that came down through 42 generations that included a whore and a murderer and all kinds of other folks and and a man who was a victim of capital punishment and we praise this same God every Sunday but yet still we won't do anything for these boys in our community that are going to jail in record numbers and the question becomes of us now, what are you going to do? What are you willing to do? Are you willing to fight? Are you willing to put your money where your mouth is? Are you willing to open up your mouth? Are you willing to raise your hands, not just to praise God, but to help somebody, but to, to reach out to somebody, to let them know that there's somebody more. Let me just say this, and I'm going to stop. Listen, man, the folk who, who who I was in prison with and the folks who came to prison, the good folk, when I was in Sing Sing, they had, they had five groups that came in every month. The first Sunday was, was the Crusaders. The second Sunday was the Pentecostal Crusaders. Third Sunday was Five and Way Church. Fifth Sunday was Pastor Christ. And fourth Sunday was Hepsop House, affectionately known by the men in Sing Sing as the white folks. And nobody went to church when the white folks came in because they sang boring hymns that nobody knew and they sang the songs about royal diadems and nobody knew what the hand grips royal diadem was. So nobody wanted to come to church. But I served with them every Sunday as the chaplain's assistant. I got saved on Rikers Island, and I preached my first sermon in Sing Sing Correctional Facility. I went to seminary, New York Theological Seminary, in Sing Sing. And when I made parole in August of 1998, I went to the Crusaders, who were from Harlem, where I'm from. And I said, hey, I'm going home. And they were like, good luck with that. And I went to the Pentecostal Crusaders, and I said, well, I I could travel to Brooklyn, that's all right. And I said, hey, I'm going home. And they said... We'll pray for you. And I went to Bible Way Church, who was from Ossining, where the, the jail was. And I said to them, I'm going home. They said, we wish you lived closer. And I went to Pals for Price and Chuck was 90-something years old. There was nothing he could. But when I went to the folk from the House, they said, what would you have us to do? And they put their arms around me. And when I came home, they brought me to their church and they brought me to their home. And they sat me with their families and, and, and we had a meal together. And that began to give me the glimmer of hope that all white folks weren't correction officers and all white folks weren't bad at all. And and, then I got to meet great folks in Sing Sing like Jim Wallace. I met Jim Jim Wallace in Sing Sing. And I need you to understand that these folks, they embraced me. They put their arms around me. And when my wife, the woman who stood with me for those nine years when I was in prison, when she passed away from cancer in 2002, those same folk from House, the white folks, the Royal Diadem folk, called the funeral home and they paid for my wife's entire funeral service. And when they came to the funeral service where I served the youth minister at the Abyssinian Baptist Church, I told them, You walk in with the family. Because you are my family. So I'm saying to you today, yeah, there's racism. Yeah, there's problems. Yeah, there's issues. Yes, there's legislation and there's grassroots things that we must address and we must do. But the first thing that we must address is the human element of humanizing men and women who will be suffering for the rest of their lives for one mistake who will be suffering for the rest of their lives because they had no other recourse, because they knew no better, they saw no better, they experienced no better, so they did no better. They won't do better until we teach them better, until we show them better, until we love them better, until we preach for them better, until we understand them better, until we understand that today is the day that we have to say, this must come to an end. It's our job. It's no one else's job. If you call yourself a Christian, read Matthew 25, 31 to 46. And if you still choose to sit on your behind, burn the Bible, stop going to church, and stop calling yourself a Christian. Because we can't serve a man, and we can't talk.